everybody. It's good to see you this morning. I hope that you've had a great week. Do you have your Bibles this morning? Good. Ephesians chapter 1 is where you need to go. Last week we kicked off our study of Ephesians that will take us a long time, especially at the rate we're going. Uh, Two verses last week, four verses this week. It will take us a long time and it is worth it because it is so rich. Last week, one of the important ideas we talked about was the concept of grace, God's unmerited favor or his undeserved kindness towards sinners that he shows towards sinners like you and me. I illustrated that by telling you a story about my kids that happened last week, about how they were being bad and they deserved a spanking, but in in an effort to teach them about grace, we took them to get milkshakes instead, and, and I told you that we deserve a spanking from God, but he gives us milkshakes. We deserve death and hell judgment from God, but he he gives us heaven and life and forgiveness of sins. Well, I got an email Monday morning from a dear brother of mine, um, <laughs> and uh, he said, if you wanted your illustration to be more biblical, you should have taken the spanking for them and then given them the milkshakes. And uh, coming from a dear brother, I, I told him that, that when he teaches his kids that lesson about grace, he can take the spanking uh, for them. <laughs> This week we're going to move into what is an amazingly rich, complex, difficult passage. In the Greek, verses 3 to 14 are one sentence. One 202-word long sentence. Joe, kid writing a paper and your English class delivered you a sentence that, that held 202 words. What would you do with it? I'd <laughs> just be glad they turned something in. Yeah. The red pen would get a workout, no doubt. Uh, what we see in these verses is Paul just, just piling one idea on top of another. He just seems to get caught up in thinking about the gospel, caught up really in praising God. That seems to be the whole purpose of the whole introduction of the letter is he wants to praise God. We'll see that very clearly in verse 3. But he, it seems like one idea comes up, which leads him to another idea, which leads him to another idea. So he just decides to string them all together with commas. And, and it is glorious and difficult, impossible almost to uh, diagram, uh, but it is so great. And what we're going to learn through the next few weeks as we look at that one long sentence, is we're going to learn a lot about theology. We're going to learn a lot of doctrine. We're going to see a lot of big, heavy ideas, this week maybe being the biggest and heaviest of them all. And and I don't want you to think that, oh, this is going to be dry and boring, bland theology. What I want you to see is that when we have good doctrine, when we have good theology, that should bring us to a place of praise in our lives. Our reaction to doctrine, our reaction to theology is worship of God, that we know better now. It is not intellectualism. It is not snobbery. It is not pride of some sort. It is humility and praise of God that we know so much better. And so that seems to be Paul's goal in the introduction. It is definitely going to be our goal that our doctrine, our theology won't be boring. It will be exciting and glorious and will result in praise uh, to the Father. This week we're going to deal with just a couple of verses. Uh, The doctrinal concept that we'll look at uh, today is election. Now, uh, some of you are already squirming and some of you are already uncomfortable. I'll admit that election is a difficult doctrine to study. Uh, especially in the SBC over the last several years, there has been a lot of debate, uh, a lot of disagreement, a lot of argument even over the doctrine of election. 
Um, and, and some of it has been honestly quite ugly and shameful to us. We have, uh, in some instances, majored on our differences instead of on our similarities, majored on the argument instead of the Great Commission and our call to preach the gospel to the nations. Just in the last few weeks, a task force within the Southern Baptist Convention delivered a, uh, a report, which will be delivered to the annual meeting this week in Houston, and uh, it talked about these disagreements, and it really was good because it, it urged people on different sides of the fence with different understandings about the doctrine of election, which we'll look at closely today. It urged them to come together based on what they have in common rather than fight about what they disagree about. That no one is going to argue that we have been called to preach the gospel to the nations, right? No one is going to argue that we have been called to invite men and women and boys and girls to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ for, for salvation, right? No one is going to argue those things. And so let's get busy about those things rather than getting preoccupied with a doctrinal argument. And so that's going to be one of our goals today is not to have an argument, but to come together based on what we agree about. Now, I will say right off the bat that there will be disagreements in this room. There will be disagreements even amongst our staff about how all the details of this work together. And what I want you to hear me clearly say at the beginning is that's okay. That's okay if we disagree about the finer points of the doctrine of election. It's okay if we disagree about those things as long as we agree about the main point of the Great Commission, right? We can get along, we can work together, even if we understand this a little bit differently. The other thing I want you to get clear today is we're not going to settle it in this room today. We're not going to settle this debate that's been going on for 2,000 years in this room today, all right? But what we are going to do is be faithful to study the text. And when the text talks about words like God chose... Words like, he predestined us, we're going to talk about them. And I'm okay with that. And I hope you're okay with that. We're not going to skip over them because they're hard. We're going to talk about them. And we're going to try to understand what he means in the context of letter to Ephesians. Um, you know, I talk sometimes to you about my mom's apple pie. You've heard me talk about my mom's apple pie and just how delicious it is and how it's, it's, it's easily the best apple pie on the planet, right? It, it is so good. And when I eat that apple pie, I want to get as much of it as possible. I want a big plate and a lot of ice cream, and I want to eat as much apple pie as I can. My mom also makes a dessert that she calls chocolate decadence. Is that right? And, and it's a flourless chocolate cake, and it has a dozen eggs in it, nine eggs in it and tons of sugar and lots of chocolate and it is super super rich now when she makes that and she doesn't make it nearly as often as she makes apple pie but when she makes chocolate decadence i get a very small piece and i eat it very slowly because it's just so rich if you try to eat it like you eat apple pie it make you sick right but you enjoy just a little bit at a time now i'm not telling you this so that you'll want to come home with us for lunch i'm, I'm telling you this because because that's the way we've got to approach this beginning of Ephesians. We can't get a big plate full and shovel it in. We've got to get a little slice and eat it a little bit at a time and savor it every bite. Okay? That's the way we're going to approach this today. So look at it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6 is all we're going to see today. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Let's pray together. God, thank you uh, for this day. And this celebration 
of your redemption, your work of salvation, your work even in election. God, thank you that this is a day of celebration and praise to you for who you are and what you have done. God, we have already we have already entered into that in singing about you and what you have done, and we've praised you in song, and we want to continue to praise you and bless you in our study today. We want to know you more. We want to understand you more. We want to see you more and hear you more, and we want to respond in worship to you. We, we don't want to walk out of here smarter. We don't want to walk out of here more intellectual. We don't want to walk out of here theological snobs. We want to walk out of here passionate worshipers of the one true God. God, I pray that you will empower that today, that you will enable that today. We cannot understand apart from the Spirit. We cannot apply apart from the Spirit. We cannot do any of this apart from your work, and so we invite you to move, to speak, to change us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so in verse 3, what Paul does is he sets the tone, states the purpose for the whole giant sentence that ends in verse 14. The idea that he's going to major on throughout the whole thing is praise. We bless God. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul talks about this idea of blessing, he uses that word three different times in that one sentence. He says, we bless God, right? We bless God, but we bless God in a different way than God blesses us. We bless him, Paul says, because he blesses us, but he blesses us with action. He blesses us with grace. He blesses us with gifts. We cannot do that to him, right? What could we give to him that he doesn't already own? What could we provide for him or do for him that he couldn't do for himself, right? So when we bless God, we are blessing him with praise, with words, with adoration, with affirmation of who he is, right? We adore him. We love him. We praise him. That's what Paul says when he said, that's what he means when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise him. Why? Because he has blessed us. He has given to us. He has acted toward us with great kindness. Notice that Paul says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That the reason why we bless him is not because he has blessed us with lots of money or lots of land or lots of houses or position or power or anything like that. That's not his primary purpose here. That's not the primary purpose of the gospel. That's not the emphasis of anything that we see in the New Testament, right? He has blessed us with spiritual blessings, right? And we are much more thankful for spiritual blessings than we would ever be of material blessings. In fact, I think there's a little parallel here with our study of Job in Sunday school. Would you react the way Job react if God took away all the material blessings in your life? If he took away everything, your family, your house, your riches, if he took it all away and left you only with spiritual things, would you say, blessed be the name of the Lord, like Job did? Or would you respond with depression and despair? And would you turn away from him because he took those things away from you? Let me tell you, if that's your reaction, if that would be your reaction, if you would turn from him or despise him because he took those material things away, I would say there's a good chance you don't even know him. If you cherish the material things that God provides more than the spiritual things that God provides, I would really question whether or not you really know him. Because at the end of the day, 
at the end of this life, all those material things are gone anyway, right? And all that remains for eternity are the spiritual things. Paul says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, not every material blessing, but every spiritual blessing. Probably the other thing he means by using that word spiritual to describe blessing is that they come from the Holy Spirit. Most of the time when Paul uses that word in the New Testament, he is referring to the source of the blessings, the source of those blessings being the Holy Spirit. One of the things you're going to see as we study for the next several weeks is the Trinity in these first 14 verses. The Father elects, the Son redeems, and the Spirit seals. And you're going to see the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, working together in perfect harmony. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That phrase, heavenly places, is only used in Ephesians. It's used five different times in Ephesians and nowhere else in the New Testament. And what it refers to, according to one scholar, is the sphere in which the principalities and powers continue to operate, in which Christ reigns supreme and his people reign with him, and in which, therefore, God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I think it parallels a little bit of what we talked about last week. Remember last week, Paul said, I'm writing this letter to the saints in Ephesus who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, we talked about how as saints, we, we occupy two different realms. We have two different locations. We are saints in Christ Jesus spiritually, and we are saints in Harrisburg physically. Do you remember that? Well, I believe what he's talking about here, about these spiritual blessings being in, in the heavenly places, is he's talking about that spiritual realm, that we are always in Christ Jesus, that we are always in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, even when we also occupy Harrisburg, Illinois, or Galatia, or wherever you live. Even when we are here, in this life, on this planet, we are ultimately citizens of heaven, right? We ultimately have a dwelling place there, and that is our ultimate home. And so Paul says, I want you to be able to think on those two levels. I want you to think about here in Ephesus. I want you to think about here in Harrisburg. And I also want you to think about being here in Christ. I want you to think about being here in the heavenly places. One of the preachers I read talking about this text said it's kind of like the president. The president is not just the president when he sits in the Oval Office, right? If the president moves out of the Oval Office into the golf course, say, or some other place, he's still the president wherever he goes, right? And he said it's similar with us as Christians. No matter where we go, we are in Christ. No matter where we go, we are in the heavenly places in Christ. Does that make a little bit of sense to you? So Paul says right off the bat, we bless God. We bless God. We praise him because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. One of the most interesting things to do as you study Ephesians is to circle or underline or highlight every time he uses that phrase, in Christ or in him. It is all over the place and seems to be a theme that all of the blessings, all of the good work, all of the redemption, all of the salvation, all of the forgiveness, all of the sealing comes in Christ Jesus and is found nowhere else. And you're going to see that five or six more times today. So right off the bat, he sets the tone. He sets the tone as a tone of praise to God for what he has done. And then in verse 4, he dives right in. Look what he says. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we be holy and blameless before him. I think the first thing I want you to notice as we move into our discussion of election is the way Paul moves into it. You and I, man, and maybe just me, we're going to dive into a, a discussion about election 
about predestination, we are going to ease into that discussion, right? We are going to tiptoe into that discussion, and we are going to tread very carefully in that discussion. But notice the way Paul goes into it. He just dives right in, right? Right off the bat, he says, eh, he chose us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's it. Paul doesn't hesitate. Paul doesn't have any fear. And there is much we can learn about the way Paul opens this discussion. Three things I think we can learn from this. Number one, the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. All right? No matter how we understand it, and we may understand it differently in this room, it is a biblical doctrine. The idea is there. We need not fear it, we need not hesitate, and we need not tiptoe. It is a biblical doctrine. Number two, even though the concept of election stands in tension with other ideas we see in Scripture, like free will, it's there. It's there. And there are a lot of ideas in the Bible that stand in tension with one another. Lots of ideas that we read about in Scripture in one place and we read about in Scripture in another place seem to be at tension with each other. And what I want you to hear clearly is that's okay. And we have to accept that tension and believe that tension. And we need to be striving toward what I would call biblical, biblical balance. Biblical balance, where we take these two ideas that seem to be in tension with, with each other, and instead of saying, well, I'm going to believe this one that Scripture clearly teaches, and I'm going to deny this one that's, that Scripture clearly teaches, because I just can't make them jive in my head, that's not a good idea, right? The other way to strive for balance is say, well, I'm going to bring this idea that Scripture teaches down a notch or two, and this idea up a notch or two, and I'm just going to believe a little bit of both, not fully both, but just a little bit of both so that I can hold them in some kind of agreement and, and not destroy my mind in the process. That's not biblical balance either, right? Biblical balance is when Scripture teaches something clearly and teaches another concept that seems to be in tension with that concept clearly, we hold them both up high. Right? We affirm both of them fully. Jesus is fully God. Amen? Jesus is fully man. Amen? That is the only way to balance those two ideas. If you try to forsake one for the other or bring them both down and meet in the middle, you will be destroyed. In fact, you'll be left without a gospel at all. If Jesus is not fully God and not fully man, we don't have full atonement. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior, right? Because he is 100% God, 100% man. Same idea here, that God is sovereign. God is sovereign and he chooses and he elects and he predestined. And man is responsible. Free. And I don't understand how those two things work together all the time, but I see clearly in scripture they do. I, I see clearly in scripture that both of those concepts are true. So, even though they stand in tension with one another, we believe them because they are there. Number three, when we come to a doctrine like this, we face two potential dangers. Number one, we can approach this concept and think we have all the answers. We can be know-it-alls and theological snobs and say, I can answer every question you can throw at me about the doctrine of election. Well, let me tell you this. I can't. I, I don't have all the answers. Some of this is mysterious. Some of this is beyond me. And that's okay. It's beyond you too. We can say we have all the answers. I don't. We can also avoid the whole idea because it's so difficult. And that's what a lot of people do. And I won't. It's there. We come to it. Words that say he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is there. And you can't ignore it. And you can't get around it. It's there. And we need to talk about it. One scholar said this about the doctrine of election. He said, try to explain election and you may lose your mind. Amen. But try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. I think that's a pretty good idea. 
Try to explain it. You might lose your mind. You might not ever get to the point where you fully understand it until you stand with him in heaven and see and know as you are known. Try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. There's something beautiful about this doctrine of election. And Paul goes right from we bless God because he blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is number one on his list right here. And so we need to deal with it. Here's how the official doctrinal statement of the Southern Baptist Convention speaks of election. It says this, election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It, exceeds, it excludes boasting and promotes humility. I think that the Southern Baptist official doctrinal statement on election is solid. And it is solid in so much as it is vague enough to allow brothers and sisters who might disagree on the finer points of a doctrine of election to come together and agree on that statement and operate together in harmony and in cooperation. I think it's a good statement, and, and it's part of what the task force report tried to uphold. So, he chose us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Look what it says next. I want to focus on some phrases in these verses in verse 4 in particular, look at every one of these significant phrases as we move through verse 6. It says, he chose. God is the one who does the choosing. You can follow the Trinitarian format in this long sentence. The Father chooses or elects. The Son redeems. The Spirit seals. Some of us have a, have a problem with this idea that God would choose, that God would choose. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It seems very arbitrary. If you have that argument, I would encourage you just to read the Bible. God chooses all over the place in the scripture. He is all the time choosing. From the very beginning, he chose Abram from Ur of the Chaldees. Was Abram the only guy that lived in Ur of the Chaldees? No, there were others, but God chose Abram, right? And of his sons, God chose Isaac, right? And of Isaac's sons, God particularly chose Jacob. Uh, in contrast to all of the popular popular understanding of the day he chose the one he should not have chose before they were even born Paul says in Romans before they were even born he chose Jacob and not Esau God chooses he chooses all over the place in scripture you just can't get around it and we shouldn't try to get around it we should just accept it and believe it because it's what the scripture says we're praying with some guys this morning and I was talking about how difficult this passage is this concept is to grasp and uh, one guy reminded me that the problem is never the scripture the problem when we have difficulty understanding is not the scripture. It's not that God says something that is wrong or misleading or confusing. The problem is never it. The problem is us. And if we read the scriptures, we will see all over the place that God chooses. And Paul says right here, he chose, that God chose. And I believe that he did. Secondly, look, look at the object of his choosing. It says, just as he chose us. He chose us. This is awesome and encouraging, and it's so personal. He didn't choose them generally. He chose us particularly. Paul says this to the brothers and sisters in Christ at Ephesus. You guys ever watch this show on ABC called Extreme Weight Loss? It used to be called Extreme Makeover Weight Loss Edition. It's a fantastic show, right? They, they, they find someone, and they travel with them for a year. This guy named Chris Powell walks them through a total body transformation and makeover. Have you seen this? 
I think it's an excellent show, and I think there's a lot of theology in that show. You should watch it. And one of the best parts of theology is at the beginning of every episode, you hear the backstory about whoever the client is going to be for the year. And then this guy named Chris Powell shows up at their workplace or shows up at some place, and he reveals himself to them, and he says a phrase in every episode. He says this to them, I choose you. And they just go to pieces. This guy shows up all fit and buff, and they are not. And he says, I choose you. I choose you. And they say, oh, that means so much that you would choose me. Listen, this text says God chose you. He chose us. We should go to pieces, right? We should not try to say, well, is that fair? Why would he choose me and not someone else? No, hear it clearly. Paul's saying, praise God, he chose us. He chose us. You're part of the us if you are in Christ. And we should celebrate that. It is personal, and it is endearing, and it is loving, and it is so encouraging. Notice next, he says, he chose us in him, in Christ. A huge theme in Ephesus, all the blessings, all the grace, all of it is in Christ and only in Christ. Notice next, he says, when this happened, when this choosing took place, he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. This is a big deal, too. It teaches us several things. Number one, this is big. It teaches us that redemption was the plan before creation. It teaches us that the gospel, that salvation was God's idea from the beginning and not some emergency response to a problem. It was his plan from the beginning. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is not some secondary thought. This is the primary purpose of creation. Secondly, this teaches us that it's all of grace. It's all of grace. He chose you before you were born. He chose us before the world was even created on which we would be born. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It also, thirdly, gives us a sense of dignity and identity. Listen to this scholar. He says, God's grace is so gracious that he had us in view before we came to faith, even before we were born, even before the world existed. That's a pretty interesting idea, that God had us in view before we were created. He had us in view before the world existed. He had us in view before we were born. He had us in view before we believed. It's pretty exciting stuff. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Look what he says next. This is big. That we would be holy and blameless before him. We need to connect these dots because these are the dots that are going to be connected all throughout Ephesians. He has not chosen, he has not redeemed, he has not saved, he has not forgiven, he has not sealed, so that you can just be like you've always been. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't save you so that you can just continue to be like you've always been. He has saved you for holiness. He has adopted you for holiness. He has chosen you for holiness. Look what he says. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So if that's why he has chosen us, if that's what he has chosen us for, the question is, is there any indication of that in your life? Several scholars that I read in studying for this said that the key test of election is growth and holiness. That the key te test to see if you are one of the elect, if you are indeed in Christ, is growth and holiness. And that got me a little bit excited because that connects this study with our last study in 2 Corinthians when he said, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. And how did I tell you to test yourself? Just if you've made a mere profession of faith? Is that a, is that a good test? No, a lot of people have faith, right? 
demons believe. Demons would make a profession of faith. They believe who Jesus is. They know what he has done. The test of our faith is growth and holiness. Paul says in this text, that's what he chose you for. He chose you that you would be holy and blameless before him. That's big, and we need to be connecting those dots. You're going to see that first half is going to be about this redemption. The second half is going to be about our response to that redemption in growing in holiness. So listen to this and just let this soak in. In verse 4, he says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. I believe that the next two words should go with verse 5. Folks who disagree with me about that, that's fine. Next, he says, in love, in love, he predestined us. I want to look at these phrases too. Notice he says, in love. It's such a positive tone, isn't it? Paul is going to begin now to speak about election and predestination, and he calls it love. He calls it a loving act. He speaks of it in the most positive words. We tend to jump to all the wrong places, have all the wrong attitudes when we think about election or predestination. We tend to think, oh, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. It seems very arbitrary. Paul speaks of it in the most positive words possible. It is a loving action, a gracious action. And along those lines, I want to remind you that God is not obligated to save anyone, right? God would be perfectly just perfectly just to condemn us all to hell. That's what we deserve, right? So it is a loving and gracious act that he would save anyone. The, the most bizarre question is not, why would God save some? The question is, why would God save any? Why, why would he save any? He's not obligated to, and yet in love he has done so. That's what the text says. He says, in love. Next he says, he predestined us. It's there, right? Nearly every translation renders it the same way, I believe. In love, he predestined us. That word is there, and we have to deal with it. It's used in the Bible several times. I was in a discussion with a guy one time about this doctrine, doctrine of election, doctrine of predestination. What does the Bible say about this? He said to me, in all seriousness and with all confidence, the Bible doesn't ever use the word predestination. And I said, you've never read your Bible. <laughs> Our discussion is over. We, can't, we cannot argue theology, we cannot debate doctrine unless we're debating biblical doctrine. We don't want to just give ideas that we have. We don't just want to give systems of thought and logic that we have. We want to say, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say? And the Bible uses that word, all right? The Bible uses the idea of election, the idea of God choosing. The Bible uses the word predestined, right? Does your Bible use that word? <laughs> okay. In love. He predestined us. Listen to what he says next. This is dynamite. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. To adoption as sons. What a picture that is of salvation, right? Adoption. One is given all the privileges, all the rights by grace. Not by right. They weren't born into the family. They were brought into the family. Remember I told you a little while ago about that picture at the beginning of that show where Chris Powell says, I choose you? How about that picture? When parents go to a place, an orphanage, and they say, I choose you. I choose you to be my son, to be my daughter, to be my heir, to be part of the family. What a beautiful picture that is, right? Some of our hearts just melt to think about that. 
some of our hearts melt to think about families that are in that process right now. One family that is very close to finalizing all that, that will be back very soon, probably even next week, with a child that is theirs by adoption, fully theirs by adoption. Some of you in this room uh, enjoy that place of gracious privilege as adopted children, and it's a beautiful thing. Let me tell you, you as a believer have been adopted in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons. We were his sons, not by right, not that we deserved it, but by grace he has welcomed us into his family and counted us as sons. The Bible speaks with this language all over the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 to 17 says this, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Yeah, that is good. Galatians 4, 4 to 7 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Ah, that should get you going. Listen to him say to you, you are no longer a slave, but a son. There could not be more difference than that, right? In a relationship to a father, are you a slave? Are you a son? You are no longer slaves. You are sons. Listen to the way John speaks of it in chapter 1, verse 10. He, that is, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You need to hear that today clearly, because we're going to invite you to receive him. We're going to invite you to believe in his name and become a child of God today, to be adopted in love as his sons. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Notice, next he says, through Jesus Christ to himself. Again, it's all done through the son. Through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. This is the basis for this election. This is the basis for this adoption. Only God can operate this way. Only God can just work according to the kind intention of his will. He is not bound to some higher obligation. He's only bound to himself. Whatever he does is right. Now, here it gets really good. At verse 6, he says, here's the purpose behind all of this. Here's the outcome of all of this. Here's the result of all of this. To the praise of the glory of his grace. When we understand election, when we comprehend the concept of predestination and adoption and grace and all of the blessings, the spiritual blessings that have been given to us in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies, our response should not be intellectual, doctrinal snobbery, but it should be worship to the praise and glory of his grace. That's our response. I've been adopted. I praise the one who adopted me saved I praise the one who has saved me I've been elected I praise the one who chose me it's the only response that is appropriate look what he says next he says to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed upon us to 
gave. The Bible talks about this all over the place, doesn't it? That salvation is what? It's a free gift. It's not something you pay for. It's not something you earn. It's not something you merit. It's something that's given as a free gift, a free gift that he freely bestows on us. He freely gave it to us. And how did he do it? In the beloved, in Jesus. It doesn't happen apart from him. It doesn't happen outside of him. Grace and forgiveness and salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. Three applications today, and then we're done. Number one is this. A right understanding of election should produce a number of things in us. Number one, humility. Election should produce humility in us. We realize that he chose us in love before the foundation of the world. That is humbling. Secondly, it should produce thanksgiving in us. Someone gives us a gift. Someone welcomes us into their family and treats us as their own, makes us their own. What should we say? You do this with your kids, right? Somebody gives them something. What do you say? What do you say? I feel like I need to do that as a pastor of this church sometimes. What do you say? Jesus died for your sins. What do you say? Yeah, we say thank you, right? It should produce in us thanksgiving, a life marked by thanksgiving. It should produce in us a sense of dignity. He was thinking about us. He chose us. He adopted us. He saved us cares about us. It should produce security and confidence. He chose you. He'll keep you. He saved you. He sealed you. He redeemed you. He will, he, will, he will preserve you. Safety and security and confidence should also produce in us a desire for sanctification, growth and holiness. He adopted us, chose us in him before the foundation of the world for holiness, for growth and sanctification. And it should produce in us praise and worship for the one who has saved us. Application number two, that was like one and five subpoints, right? Application number two, I want you to hear my heart in this. Don't want you to misunderstand this. However you understand election, and I am open to a number of understandings of election in this room. Whether you think it is conditional election based on God's foreknowledge of future events, based on him being able to see ahead that you would believe and therefore he chose you because you believe, or whether you see election as unconditional, that God did it from ages past with no, with no uh, relation to what would happen in the future, but rather what happens in the future is contingent upon what happened in the past. Hear me clearly, where however you understand election, this much is true. It is God's business and not ours, right? Election is God's business and not ours. We don't know who is elect or who is not elect or, who, or how all the details work. All we know is that he has called us to proclaim the gospel, to invite people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, and that those who will believe are elect. It's really the only way to tell. You know who the elect are? No matter how you understand it, no matter how you understand election, do you know who the elect are? Now, only the ones who have believed, right? Do you know who the rest of them are? No, because they haven't believed yet. And when they believe and they grow in holiness and they follow Jesus, then you'll know that they were elect too. When we talk about election, we're talking about something from God's perspective, from God's point of view. We do not enjoy his perspective. We do not enjoy his point of view. We are very limited in our perspective, limited in our point of view. But what we do know is this. He has called us to preach the gospel. And when we preach the gospel, men and women and boys and girls, to be called to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. And those who respond are the elect. However you understand it, that, that much is true in Scripture. So what do you do? You preach. One writer said it this way. We do not know who God's elect are, 
The only way we can find them out is by their response to the gospel and by their subsequent growth and holiness. Our task is to proclaim the word boldly. So the application, number two, is preach. Don't fight about your view of election or my view of election or somebody else's view of election. Don't fight about that. Preach the gospel. We have wasted, we have wasted, I hope someone says this this week from the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention, we have wasted too much time arguing about the details of election. And we do that with a lot of things, by the way. Too many of us have got caught up in arguing about election and forgot to preach the gospel. So preach the gospel. Preach the gospel so that men and women and boys and girls can believe and be saved. Application number three, this is huge, and we're going to sing a song that nails this. It is Jesus. It is all about him. And all of this blessing and all of this grace and all this forgiveness and all of this choosing and all of this work only comes through him. It is Jesus, only Jesus. It's all from the Father through the Son. There is no other mediator. There is no other Savior. He stands alone. So what do we do? We run to him and believe if you don't already. Run to him, trust in him, depend on him, believe in him, follow him, run to him. It's all about him. And if you already do, if you're already there, trusting in him, believing in him, Praise him. Sing a song a minute that says, Who, who's like him? Nobody like him. He stands alone. We stand amazed. Jesus, only Jesus. It's all about him. It's not, not about you. It's not about you. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you for what you have told us in your word. And thank you for what you've not told us in your word. You haven't told us all the details of this mystery of election but you have certainly told us you chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. You've certainly told us some things very clearly. And we want to respond rightly to those things with humility and thanksgiving and dignity and security and sanctification and doxology and praise. We want to be careful not to get caught up in a life of arguing theology instead of doing evangelism and doing ministry and doing the work you've called us to do. God, clearly, clearly, you've given us time to discuss and debate. Iron sharpens iron. But that's not ultimately what you've called us to. Ultimately, what you've called us to do is to preach. And we want to do that. We might not understand what's going on behind the curtain, behind the scenes. But we clearly understand your call in our lives to go and preach the gospel. And God, we thank you that you've shown us that it's, it's only Jesus. It's Jesus, only Jesus. There's not another way to salvation. There's not another path. There's not another route. There's not another priest. There's not another mediator. There's not another savior. It's only Jesus. So I pray for those of us in this room who know him, that we will praise you, praise him, that we will celebrate and worship in the next few minutes. And God, I pray for men and women, boys and girls in this room who don't know you. I pray they'll run to Jesus, trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, and be saved, sealed sons and daughters of a king. God, we pray that you would help us and you be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.